0: This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music at our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing.
1: Welcome to the 520th episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. Tonight, we discuss Cortex Primer traits in your tabletop role-playing games. But first, my name is My Jerry. name is Chris. And I am old
0: man Logan. All right, let's do some announcements. First thing is Phil's not here this week because he's on vacation. Papa Panda is on the road. Another thing is uh, we have a Patreon.
2: We do have a Patreon.
0: Yeah, if you are going to uh, patronize or patron, you don't want to, I mean, you could patronize
2: us if you want. I mean, you want technically, a- that's the, der- 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 the-, the-, the derivation of the word.
0: Isn't it just to be a patron of the Patreon? I, I don't because patronize is does it have multiple definitions where one of them is to I'm sure it is. Oh, interesting. We should look that up at some point. Like if you
2: go to a bar, you are a patron of the bar, uh-huh. you are patronizing that I bar.
0: I guess so. Yes. So if you are a if you're going to patronize us, you can get the bamboo lounge and the after show at our lowest levels. If you want to give us a few more shekels, you can get children of the shroud stuff, such as
2: well, we have character sheets yes which are kind of cool we have um, behind the screen by phil yes behind the screen that's what bts stands for because i couldn't remember what it was <laughs> and that's why i <laughs> skipped that
1: one i thought they were some sort of korean pop band.
2: bts if you're in if you're into the k-pops
1: yeah i mean i like me some k-pop sometimes webster's defines patronize as to act as a patron of provide aid or support for or to adapt an air of condescension towards treat haughtily or it cool, is both or. or To be a frequent or regular customer or client of. Uh, It's all three of those things, huh? Yes, it is. Interesting. Many much
2: definitions.
0: So, join our our patron. You can also get game rules and some flash fiction at times. Like our angel thing that I recorded and we had the, the document of. Yes. Cool. There we go. Those are our announcements. Now, we are going to go to the garage to talk about Cortex traits. Access granted. Traits are the building blocks of Cortex games. We build our dice pools from them. The fiction created at the table is influenced and funneled through them. They're the most prime of Cortex Prime. In the core of Cortex section of the Cortex Prime book, the first thing you're told to do is to write down your character's name and one central thing they're good at. This is their trait. You can't have a Cortex Prime game without traits. Before we define our terms, I just wanna say we're gonna talk about and reference other Cortex mechanics during this discussion. We may or may not take a moment to go over them. If you listen to our Children of the Shroud games, which there's a bunch of them now, you will get the gist of how these other parts of the game work, but this discussion is going to be focused on traits. So now let's define our terms. What is a trait? A trait is a descriptive label with a die rating attached. A descriptive label is a word or phrase that tells you what the trait is doing in play. The die rating is a die type or set of dice that let the players know how much impact the trait has on the game a d4 being a weak trait, and a d12 being a very impactful trait. Here's two examples to help clarify. From the character sheet point of view, let's talk about Geek d10. Geek informs us how much mental acuity, mundane recall, and observation a character has. A d10 rating means the character is very intelligent, but not at the highest level of intelligence one could be. Now let's talk about a trait from the table point of view. Uh, Let's talk about Strain in the Shroud d8. Strain in the Shroud informs us how much the Shroud has been strained, we have it in our game pretty often, and we know that if it goes beyond d12 it's going to be a problem for those of us who work within the Veil's rules. A d8 rating means that there's been some pushing on the Shroud, and whatever is causing that pushing should stop until the Shroud recovers, but we're not really in dire straits yet. Now that we've defined our terms, let's get into the description of types of traits. So there are a lot of different types of traits in Cortex Prime games. These include, but are not limited to, attributes, distinctions, skills, affiliations, relationships, powers, roles, and values. That's a whole bunch, let me tell you. I want to focus in now on trait sets. Trait sets are any collection of traits that belong to the same basic type. You can only add one trait from a trait set to a die pool without added cost. This added cost varies from game to game, but it is often a plot point. Attributes, relationships, powers, roles, skills, and values are a few kinds of trait sets, but you can make up whatever kind of sets you want, especially to fit them for your game. In our Children of the Shroud game, we have roles defined as emo, geek, jock, performer, and popular. Uh, I talked about geek earlier. That's mental acuity, mundane, recall, and observation, but the other four, jock, physical activities and actions, popular, your connections, the power of your social network and social currency, emo, which is the weird fringe knowledge and understanding, uh, your feelings and empathy, and then there's performer, which are social skills, lying, acting, performing, that kind of stuff. Taking that a step further, this trait set in our game influences how you interact with these cliques in high school. It's kind of performing double duty, which is why we built it that way. We are also using relationships, affiliations, and distinctions as trait sets. We'll probably talk about them a little bit more later and how they're functioning in our game, but I want to talk right now about the universal trait set, distinctions. Distinctions, I want to paraphrase from the Cortex Prime book. They're sort of like your character's elevator pitch. If you read all of someone's distinctions, they should tell you a lot about that person's character. They can describe the character's personality, quirks, their role in the world, how they see themselves, really any number of things, but they do a lot of work to give you as a player touchstones to help bring that character to life through play. According to Cam Banks, the designer of Cortex Prime, every Cortex Prime game has distinctions. You can mess with or modify any of the other traits and trait sets, but the game was designed with distinctions as a cornerstone of the experience. Alright, let's talk about our Children of the Shroud game real quick. So we have Henry Gunny Gunderson, that's Bob's character. He has these distinctions. I can't disappoint my mom, sins of the father, and a leaf on the wind. So what does this tell us about Bob's character? First, he has a strong relationship with his mother and doesn't want to let her down for some reason. We're not quite sure what that means until play starts and that comes up in the story, but at least we have an idea of that. We also know that his father has done something wrong that is probably passed down onto him. That's the sins of the father. And leaf on the wind means he's probably quite quick and has some kind of air magic if you look at our setting of magical high school swashbuckling adventure and drama. The last thing to mention is that each of these distinctions is rated at a D8, which makes them useful, but not overpowering. It's, I like putting D8s in my dice bowl. It feels good. Now let's move on to temporary traits. So these are traits which last for a short time, like a scene or a session. They often go away when they're no longer relevant to a situation, and I believe that the uh, temporary trait is the Swiss army knife of Cortex Prime games. So these temporary traits, they, they sit on the table, and assets and complications are the most common examples of temporary traits. They come up a lot, so let's get into them. Assets. They get included in a die pool when they're applicable and helpful, and there are three ways to create them. You can spend a resource called a plot point to create a d6 asset for the scene. There are certain abilities called SFX which allow for the creation of d8 assets. These are referred to as stunts, they are often on your character sheets. And you can also take an action to make an asset by rolling against a difficulty. Now, there are some rules surrounding this which we're not going to get into right now, but in a future primer we will. Now let's talk about complications. Complications are traits that go into the opposing die pool to make it harder to succeed, makes sense? This works for both player characters and GM PCs. Before we can talk more about complications, we need to talk about hitches. A hitch is when the players roll dice and one or more of them come up as ones. When a one is rolled, the GM can buy it from the players for a plot point. Now, I've mentioned plot points a few times, but let's talk about it a little bit more. These are the core currency of Cortex Prime games, There's an economy in the game where plot points will flow back and forth between players and Game Master. The Game Master, depending on the game, could have an infinite amount of plot points to then pay for hitches and such, while the players have a variety of ways to acquire plot points so that they can spend them to help them succeed at things. In a future Cortex Primer, we will do a deeper dive into plot points, but hitches and rolling them is one of the ways to get them as players. Once that plot point is paid to the player, a complication is created. Complications will go away as the fiction dictates, but if they're a little more sticky, like say a gunshot wound, they can be dealt with by making a test to get rid of them. Uh, a test is what you would consider a check in other games. You probably need some fictional positioning also to get rid of your gunshot wound. Like if you don't have somebody that can stitch up a gunshot wound, it's not going away. Aside from assets and complications, there is the potential for other floating traits that just exist in a scene that can either assist or hinder the players. They can also just be traits that sit in the scene that have the opportunity to be interacted with, but don't really hinder or help the characters to begin with. For instance, say there's a chandelier sitting in the middle of the room at D8. Well, there's a chandelier at D8 just sitting out there. Until someone swings off that chandelier or does something with that chandelier, we don't include it in any die pool. It's not hindering, it's not helping, but as soon as somebody wants to use it as part of their fiction, then it becomes relevant. Alright, well, that's all the basic information about traits. Now we're going to talk with the rest of the MMP crew and get a little deeper inside ways that you can use this information inside of a Cortex Prime game. But first, let's talk about another show from Misdirected Mark Productions.
2: I would love to tell you about Thaco with Advantage. Ange and Jared love talking about RPGs and D&D. Together, they share insights into the games they're running in the campaign journal, and then they tackle a variety of topics that affect the game in the DM's workshop. They're going to talk anyway, so they might as well record it, right? hmm Maybe you'll even pick up an ancient D&D factoid about a previous edition of the game that you'll never use. Such as? Um, Anybody got one? I do factoids at the beginning of every episode. <laughs> Back in
1: Advanced D&D... The first edition of Advanced D&D, they had stupid rules where different genders had different maximum character stats, and that was just sucky. And even back then, we knew it was a dumb idea, (laughs) but it existed, and there's still a few grognards out there. Try it. But if you see it, just ignore it and play the characters you want to play. I
2: agree. Yes, have some.
1: That being said, I did like rolling up some characters in in First Edition It was kind of fun, right? All right, let's move on to our question and discussion points about
0: this. So, trait sets, we're going to talk about them first. Trait sets in play. I am going to pose it to the question. I will uh, ask Jerry first. How do you think we can leverage them in play
1: as a game master? By setting up various tests and setting up various scenes, you can push a scene towards one or more traits. I agree. By different trait sets as well. You can have a a whole scene that just focuses on, for example, the school aspect. No matter what else we do, this is going to be related to school. Or it can be something where it's going to be some intellectual. And as a result, it's going to be geek or possibly popular or performer. So you can set each of those up. And so as a result, you can kind of lead that way, but also you can set the game up in such a way that you allow the players to define a little bit of the scene by the traits that they choose. So by putting them in a situation, you can kind of find out what they want to do with it, which then can, again, inform you on what you want to do next. So it goes back and forth and I think that works really well. Yeah, I think so. Uh-
0: I mean, Bob, you and I, because we're smart in the game, like our characters are intelligent, we have fairly high geek stats, Phil often sets up things surrounding that with this academic decathlon stuff that we've been involved in.
2: Yes, he gives us opportunities to flex those particular traits in scenes to build on the school drama portion of the game Mm -hmm. and allow us role-playing interaction with some of the NPCs. And we get some pretty good scenes out of those.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I, I I actually like those scenes a lot. They're very good intro scenes to the stories that we often have been playing so far. The three examples that we have of them.
2: Yeah, especially when you have to go up against your rival, Mm-hmm. Lisa,
0: at times, or you know, in story three, the uh, the 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 enemy who's not really the enemy. You'll find out later. Anyways, as a GM for me, like when I'm playing Leverage, but I I will refer to our Children of the Shroud game. I will use those trait sets to push players into certain spaces too like if they want to scout out a building and leverage i mean we're talking about then um is it going to be the hacker using hacking is it going to be the thief using their thief skill to then infiltrate to like find out where all of the entrances and exits are stuff like that so that particular trait set is used for that whereas the relationship trait sets are used for i will leverage them for scene setting oh you want to go talk to your contact well i will utilize this character here that's in your relationships to set a scene because they are probably over here in this space we just talked about it really like that's what lisa does like lisa's part of the school so when a scene is set for our rival my rival your friend bob Mm -hmm. then we are in that space to to, to play that kind of game other ways that i leverage trait sets as a gm i don't know that there is a lot of other ways to leverage trait sets as a gm that's that's
1: usually how i think of it i think i think it depends a little bit on the trait sets like in ox the we have a very specific thing that allows us to kind of leverage the trait sets because when we go to do a scientific uh, rescue mission or a scientific emergency uh-huh. disaster, uh, we end up choosing out of one of the trait sets. We get to choose one of them, and they and he gets to choose one that sets that up in the trait set for our actions. We have five different actions. When we have to deal with a disaster, we get to choose one of those actions that we want to take, and as a GM, he gets to pick one of those actions that we also are going to have to take so we are going to have to take two actions and so by leveraging that he can determine whether like we say we we want to do fabrication and he's like well i want to see how you're going to implement that or we're going to do a research and observation to figure out how to how to figure it out and that sort of thing now the other great thing that that
0: does for phil in that particular case for that game is he can decide what kind of beat he wants because implementation is way different from figuring out how to do it yeah yes because we could pick also assemble the solution, which is putting the thing together. Yep. Usually Bob's character, El Farum, who's an engineer, is very good at that. Yes. So if that beat has been hit too many times, he can manipulate the beat structure of the, of the sequence of scenes. We pick something and then he's like, well, we haven't seen uh, how to do it yet. Yep. Yeah. Which a lot of times in the game, we've already figured out how to do it. So he might pick something else, but there's like five options for him. In fact, mm-hmm. each of the actions is linked to one of those five options in our scientific discovery methodology for that game it's really interesting i yes. hope we get to show it with you all, all you folks at some point in the future it's it's fascinating e- eventually we will yeah. yeah i'm sure
1: when it's over with we're gonna we've already talked about looking at that so mm-hmm.
0: so as a player when you see a trait set for instance in our children in the shroud like there were those five traits geek emo performer popular jock when you look at that how does it make you feel about the game and how does it what are you looking for when you look at that and then how does it influence your play of that particular game
2: having with that example that says a lot about what the game is doing because they're very specific things emo being all of the emotional and and weird type things in the in the world and jock of course being your athletic type stuff and so it lends itself towards a very uh, school-like because of of the the game that we're playing. They're very school-related type traits, and it gives you a lot of information towards that whole teen angst kind of area of the game. So when I see those, it gives me a very specific mindset. Like, I know where I am with this character because these are the things that I'm going to be using so I very quickly can get into that mindset of I'm a teenage kid in school doing stuff in this world. That's where that that takes me. If it was, you know, a completely different thing, your your mind is going to be taken to a different place because of those traits.
1: What about you, Jerry? I think I kind of follow in the same thing. When I'm looking at the trait sets, initially when building a character, I like to look at how the trait sets are going to inform uh, the character I'm building in the backstory that I want. And then going from there, for example, looking at T, he obviously started out with a low geek score and a high jock score because he was meant to be kind of an ex-jock. So he was going to not be the smartest character in the blo- on the block and be big and bigger. And that immediately gave me some image of what that character was like. And by skewing the other trait sets around, like a uh, performer and a popular could say a little bit about what that character was going to be doing moving forward. And in other games, like for example, an ox where my character in the trait sets that gave us all of our scientific backgrounds, I focused heavily on the medical stuff, biology, medicine, um, but also a little bit of the physical side. Cause geeks, cause, uh, Gre's a little bit of an action boy and, uh, <laughs> action scientist. Gree. That's right. He's basically, he's basically a furry doc. Savage. um, all, all of that kind of works by just looking at the traits and picking them. You can kind of just like with any game system, you can kind of skew them. The traits are similar to the attributes you have in other games, but they tend to be more narrative and more informing. And that's what's the important part.
0: So when I look at it, it really does inform like who my character is for me. So I see this. I'm like, Oh, if I'm going to be smart, I don't want to be very, and I'm not going to be very jock heavy. Then that tells me something about me. Also, the popular and the performer tell me other things about me too, as does the emo. Like my character is not very, does not have a very high emo score in that game, Silas, which means I'm not very in touch with my emotions, which I did on purpose because. Mesame's magic is very in touch with her emotions. And now I'm all screwed up because my magic is a lot of times influenced by emotions. And I can't handle my emotions because my dad and my mom in that game are not very close to me especially emotionally it's a very closed off family i Mm -hmm. I would say it's not very healthy
2: yeah and you used my my opinion you used the the conflict between those traits very well to portray how that character was going through all of that stuff
0: honestly i didn't even think about some of that stuff until i had those traits on the sheet Mm -hmm. they influenced my play and how did that's that's how it changed the way that i played silas because i had some ideas when i came to the table. And then when we started playing, I'm like, I didn't even think about the idea of Mesame's magic being emotion-based until we were playing. And then I'm like, Oh, emo is all about emotions, and I have a low emo score. I probably can't handle it. This which is why my magic's all messed up because yeah. I don't know how to tap into it. So I'm slowly tapping into it, and I will eventually start bumping up my emo score to go along with the fact that I'm becoming more in touch with my emotions. There you go. That's good. So it's a, a thing to think about when you look at these trait sets. Is like how do they help characterize your character? Just like any stats, pretty much in any role-playing game, right? Yeah, it's
2: it's never a bad idea after you've created the 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 trait sets for the for the game and then sat down and thought what your character is going to do when you get into the game and start playing is to keep looking over those and and review what you've got for those traits and see how that might inform where your character is going or what they're doing. Cuz like you said, you didn't even realize it at first and you're like, "Oh, wait. That's a great opportunity to create some conflict for my character." Mhm. So it's never a bad idea to go through and review those again and say, you know, how might this, you know, affect something? So if you're sitting down to create a Cortex Prime game, what is your goal with trait sets when you're doing the building?
0: My goal when building a trait set is to identify what my genre is and what the goals of the game are, and then build a trait set around that. And hopefully I'm working with the rest of the people that I'm playing this game with. If it's not. If it's just something we're doing for fun, which most games even that get published often are that anyway, unless you're like using a property that exists. So our game was magical high school swashbuckling. We tried to build trait sets that represented that. Yes. yes. Now, Phil did a lot of that work on his own, but we had a fair amount of input into oh, yeah. how that worked. Oh yeah. It was, it was
1: very
2: collaborative. Yeah.
1: The five clicks, I think Phil came up with those. No, I think we talked about those. Did we, did
0: we talk about those? I, th-
1: I think those, and I think I think in all three of them, I th- even I think relationships was something we talked about. I mean, about. relationships, yeah.
2: That was a, a yeah, discussed thing. I, I think we collaboratively came up with the general idea of each of those- Being clicks. Click mm-hmm. type things. And yeah. then Phil went through and found the names that, that he felt were appropriate for each one. Yes. By and we, thinking about actual clicks in high school.
1: And then we had a 15 minute discussion about one of them just trying to figure out the yeah. name, which- Luckily we don't, we didn't bother recording. So <laughs> Yeah. I forget what that which one was that? Geek. Oh, it was the geek, geek one. Was geek versus nerd. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we went back and forth yeah. on that for a yeah. little bit. So we that, that was definitely something that we were involved in though as a as a yeah. team, which was good.
0: I think we wanted these trait sets. Like we wanted one that was more focused on the school side of things. We wanted one that was more focused on the magic side of things in some way, shape, or yep. form. And then we wanted one that was right in the middle that could flip both ways, which was the affiliations. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I think that one has been the most interesting trait set as we've been playing the game because we built it and then I think we didn't all agree on exactly what those three things meant. We
2: did not. We had to have a couple of discussions about that because the difference between Veil and Magic, they seem like they're similar, but Veil is all of the stuff relating to the magical society and its rules, and then Magic is all of the magical stuff that's outside of that structure. Just magic in general and non veily things is what we essentially landed on. From
1: yeah, that. and one of the nice things about all the trait sets as you are building them is if you build them properly, like I think we did this time, you can narratively shift from one 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 choice to another in the trait set. I mean, we've had things where like Phil wanted to set up. And he said, "Well, this is kind of a veil thing, and you can make an argument. Well, I'm not tapping into the veil. I'm tapping into the magic of my my girlfriend's dead soul. So I'm going to be using." The magic side of it in this in this case, Mm -hmm. because I think that's more important in this scene because I'm not I'm actually fighting against the veil in this case. So narratively, the more narrative, the more descriptive, the more role playing you do, the more flexibility you'll have with these traits, but also the better story you'll tell when you're using the traits. That's where I'm at with that. now too.
0: Because I'm like, cool. When we were fighting the Lancaster Legends, I'm like, what affiliation are we standing up for? Yes, because that's another way to look at it. Like, where is my mind at while I'm doing this thing? Like, I'm defending the veil, mm-hmm. or like in your case, you were fighting a bully, and you were like, "It's my, it's totally school for me," yeah. because I'm not thinking about it that way. I'm thinking about it from that point of view.
2: Yeah, I was, I was totally, uh, totally vibing the the I hate bullies thing, mm-hmm. and that's the other thing when you sit down to look at what trait sets you want to use. We specifically chose in in the Children of the Shroud instance affiliations where we went with school, magic, and veil. And that's a completely different vibe from doing something like knowledge areas that we did with um, aux, where we have a much longer list and that very much informs what the game is going to be about what kind of things you're going to be doing when you make checks.
0: 100% agree. Yeah, I mean, we should talk about that for a second. The aux thing? like, Yeah. We have a longer list. There are knowledge areas that are way more specific in a lot of ways, yet still broad enough. Yes. But there's like 12 of them. Yeah. yeah. And they range from like physics, like physical sciences, yep. to starship piloting and planet based vehicle.
2: Yeah. Planetary piloting. vehicles, space vehicles, physical sciences, social sciences,
1: kinetics, which is basically our, our action stat. And what we don't have is a single trait of any sort that allows for combat. Yeah. I mean, we could manipulate some of that stuff to be combat-type stuff if we wanted to, but we have a thing in our game where we don't do that. Yeah. But by not including any that easily lead to combat, the traits themselves lead the game in a situation where you're not going to be fighting things. I mean, in any other role-playing game, Gree would be a freaking combat monster. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. But he's not. The only time he gets active is when he's jumping into the maws of creatures they give them pills and stuff yes. like
2: that. Mm-hmm. Very purposeful choices. We said this game is not about combat. It's about scientific genius and the and the and the minds of these people doing these amazing scientific things. <laughs> BDSM. <Yes. laughs> Beings doing scientific marvels. Oh my yes. God. Right? Yes. <laughs> you could easily in our action list where it's implementation, fabrication. Observation, uh, communication Say, we wanted to take that game and spin it off just a little bit to the side and say, we're going to do a librarians game, which is a lot of scientific genius type stuff. Yeah. You could easily take one of those actions, add one that says combat. Yeah. Just so that you specifically have, because you've got a guy in there that's going to do some punching. Mm-hmm. And then that opens up a whole other thing where you've got, okay, I'm going to take the combat action and I'm using kinesiology, the action y thing. Or I'm going to use the combat thing with my. Uh, life sciences, my, my life sciences, so I know where to hit this guy to incapacitate him and stuff like that. Totally different flavor.
1: Yes, with just a very small tweak. Our action would have to be defenestration.
0: <laughs> I mean, removing somebody through a window, always yes. a good idea. <laughs> All right, let's move on to distinctions, and I want to talk about Gunny's distinctions. Absolutely. Yes. I can't disappoint my mom, sins of the father, a leaf on the wind. I mentioned this earlier in the episode. Why did you choose these and what do they mean for Gunny when you're playing him in a scene and for where you want to take the character's story, if anywhere?
2: Right out of the gate, I decided that Gunny is very much in the mold of my mom is my world right now because it's just her and me, dad's gone, and she has very specific expectations about my life, going to school, getting good grades, but she also runs a small business. And it's just her. So she needs all the help she can get. So I have to do double duty. I got to be good at school and I got to help her out. So I said, okay, I can't disappoint my mom. That's going to be a driving force. That's distinction number one. So anything where it's going to be like, hey, this is going to break my mom's heart or something like that. That's the one. I can't disappoint my mom. So I decided that when Gunny got his magic, it's an air-based thing. He's, a, he's a, a, an air elemental. He's going to be a guy that is going to have a lot of movement because of wind, air blowing, that kind of thing. So I decided that I would create something like that so that if I'm moving during a scene, I can leverage that in different circumstances. And then, of course, the middle one, sins of the father. My father, when I created the character and and started giving Phil his information to play off of, I said, dad's gone. They told us he died in a car crash. May or may not be true. Don't know. But he was magical. And I'm going to inherit my magic from him. Whether he's around or not, that's going to be where I get it from. And so I thought, okay, whatever happened, whether he was a good guy or not, I inherited more than just his magic. Because I've got his magic, there could be obligations, there could be repercussions left over, things like that. Phil has hinted at this. He says
0: you have, like, your father has enemies.
2: Yes, absolutely. And as it turns out, he might very well be a renegade, which Mm -hmm. is a person that is magical operating outside of the veil, which they don't like. Except when people hear this episode, they'll have already heard the fact
0: that your father is working with my father. But that does not mean he's not a renegade. That's true. Maybe my dad's a (laughs) renegade too. So there's the the plot thickens. T. Why is your character so like baked into
1: the setting as being so normal compared to the rest of us? Well, because he's actively he was actually resisting everything else. He was trying to rebel. He was trying to be normal for so long, and suddenly had responsibility thrust upon him, which is something he wasn't expecting and didn't want. But is now finding that he's likes. So that's why he's so normal. He's got a normal family. He's got um a normal family as you can get in the setting. Mm -hmm. He has. A stable nuclear family with two loving parents that are very supportive and nurturing. They're so nice. Yes, they are. He's got siblings that harass him and all of that together kind of informs the fact that he really doesn't have anything to rebel against, at least initially. Mm -hmm. And then when he decides to do so, rebel against the the family, the magic nature, whatever, that's kind of... Now he's got to rely on that. That's one of his distinctions is, say my name. Like, if he wants to, he can drop his family's name. Mm-hmm. He doesn't try to do it very often, but there are times that he's going to have to. I think it's funny that we both have that same, almost like a similar distinction that well, yeah, it's It makes great.
2: sense. What's well, part of our back. It's but similar, yeah. but it's different it's, just yeah.
1: enough. Mm-hmm. Yours is almost like intimidating. Yeah. Mine is more about peddling influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly the difference. And that's exactly it. That shifts my popular up by one, <laughs> which, Yeah, <laughs> which is the point. It just is terrible for people to hear that I'm a flame
0: worth. Yeah, yeah. Bob, your distinctions when you're playing gunning in a scene, uh, the the one about your mom's easy, right? Like, yeah. that one moves. What does sins of the father do for you when you're in a scene
2: and you hear about your dad? As a touchstone, it's, um, as as I said before, I've got my magic from him, mm-hmm. but it's not just the magic. Sure, there are other things. So what I do is I keep in mind that there could be a lot of different things that could be involved with being the son of the winter wind. Right. If he is a renegade, then the powers that be, if they figure out, which I think they already know I'm the son of the winter wind. That's fairly common knowledge in the veil. Yeah, it is. It is very common. Yep. So I'm almost positive. They're keeping their eye on me. Yeah. Because I imagine so. Son of a renegade, like, you know, what does he really know about his dad, you know? Also the guy who's basically the the black ops guy. The in, grand inquisitor. Yeah,
0: his son has been assigned to you like your crew, your yeah. group, your your little Yeah, uh, I, wonder, of I wonder how that worked. Yeah, I know, right?
2: <laughs> you know, does does Silas know is Silas being used? Probably to keep an eye on me. I would imagine you so. Know? Probably, you know. I think at this point, we've all probably thought of it and we've all probably come to peace with it because we all get along. We're all friends. We are. I
0: think one of my favorite m- favorite things that's happened so far when it comes to the sins of the father thing for you is when it comes up in play. Like when like, oh, this is like a, a, a thing that your dad did. Like you pursue it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You'll all hear this, I think, in the next week or two where Bob's character, Gunny, will not stop to find this thing even to the point where he might be like messing around with, with the shroud and maybe get seen doing it.
2: Yep. I took a chance on being seen doing something magical and... Uh, the Shroud flexed a little. <laughs> it did flex a little. <laughs> flexed a little. But yeah, that um, it's that one I think is going to definitely come into play a lot more in the near future because of where the, the that particular path is going right now.
0: Let's move on to, so I didn't get into SFX earlier about decreasing your distinction to a D4 to getting a plot point. That's a thing that you can do in Cortex games. Mm-hmm. What does it mean for gameplay and storytelling as a player, Jerry?
1: It does two things. For gameplay, first of all, it allows you a way to easily get plot points. Yeah, in-game way to get plot points. If you're low on plot points, you can simply drop your D8 to a D4, and the GM will give you a plot point. However, to really do it well, you should be narrating why you're dropping the distinction to a, to a, to a D4. Either it's interfering with what you're doing, or it's the bad choice for the situation, mm-hmm. or something else in the scene is going to be reacting to what you're doing and again it makes for a more narrative more exciting role it gives you a plot point makes and you can still succeed with it i mean we've had several times where that d4 has rolled a four yeah instead of rolling a one what you're basically doing is giving yourself a one in four chance of rolling that one and giving the gm a plot point and in an, a complication giving the GM a chance to give you another plot yes point. yes exactly but you could have the narrative the narrative side of things i mean if if gunny decides to do sins of the father and Get his D eight, but then drop it to a D four, he might be saying, you know, I'm being distracted by whatever's going on. In Gutty's case, that works even better because Gutty gets a D if Gutty drops to a D four, he gets a plot point. And if he uses Sins of the Father, he gets a plot point. If he rolls a one, he'll get a third plot point. Do you? Okay. Get that for
0: for sins of the father. Sins of the
1: father. Whenever he pursues something that's counter to the veil, he gets a plot. Oh, point. that's fun. That's, yeah, that's what that's what the special effect is. Nice. So Gunny that's can like a three banger right there. But almost always, that is some sort. Of, almost always, when Gunny does that, it's complicating the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's gonna be even when he doesn't take the D four. So taking that D four makes it an especially complicating situation, and makes it interesting. Whenever he brings up sins of the father, something cool is gonna happen at the table, whether he rolls well or not. Something very cool is about to happen because...
2: It's creating more narrative drive.
1: I'm with you. and It was a good choice for distinction. I really like that distinction.
2: I was a little worried about it, and actually, I still want to have a little conversation with Phil about it, because we didn't really have a good conversation about it before we started play, mm-hmm. because it felt like it was a little too open to interpretation. Phil's going to have to make a judgment call if I say I want to use this kind of a thing. So... I agree with that.
1: It may be a little loosey-goosey at the moment. You haven't. The other thing though is you haven't abused it. You've used sins of the father on multiple occasions just to get the D eight, where you have used it narratively discuss why it's happening, but haven't pushed against the veil. So you haven't asked for that for that plot point. Yeah, you should have got a plot point for going after the thing. You should. Yes, that's true. Uh,
2: yeah, and I completely didn't even think about it because I was yeah. so wrapped up in the scene <laughs> that I was like, "I'm going to do this thing."
1: I didn't even know that you had that as a special effect. Yeah. The thing that's cool is just what you said. You were so wrapped up in the scene and that distinction drove the narrative of that scene. Drove drag play. You didn't grab that because, ooh, I want this mechanical effect. You grabbed it because this is the cool thing that makes sense for my character to do. Yeah. And that's what all the traits do on a regular basis is I'm picking this trait because it's interesting. I'm picking this trait because the story says this is going to make things a lot more fun. Succeed or not. This is why distinctions are so important and why
0: Cam Banks is like, these are distinctions that can't be pulled out of the game. If you can pull anything else you want out of the game, but you, if you pull this out, you're probably not playing a Cortex game anymore.
2: Yeah. How does a character's distinctions influence you as a GM when preparing and running Cortex
1: games? That's the first thing I would look at as a GM is one of the character's distinctions because that's going to tell you what kind of things that the players design their character around doing. From a storytelling standpoint, we know that, we want, that Gunny's going to want at least every session or two to have some situation where he's going to be dealing with his father's legacy and how that influences the veil. Silas is being put in situations all the time where he can drop his dad's name for better or for worse. And the funniest part is that when Chris plays that, he never wants to drop his dad's name. Nope. <laughs> Sometimes he does it reluctantly. Sometimes he does it deliberately, but begrudgingly. Yep. And both of those say something about his character. As soon as I see characters distinctions and I do something in the game Let's a character use that distinction. I'm giving them a chance to tell the story about their character. All right, let's talk about temporary traits. I mean, I think this personally is
0: where Cortex Prime shines as a game system. The temporary trait, and I said it earlier, is the Swiss army knife of Cortex games. What are some of your favorite uses of the temporary
2: trait that you've seen, Bob? Personally, my favorite one so far is the one that Phil came up with, which Was not just a trait with a die on it, Mm -hmm. right? Or a a crisis pool. It was a multi die item where each die represented a different thing that needed to be figured out. So, like, there was a machine in our game. We got to
0: talk about this for a second because this is not in the rules. Yeah, it it needs to be parsed. Phil, Phil
2: came up with this, and I thought it was brilliant. So, it functions
0: like a crisis pool. In a lot of ways, or a mob, mm-hmm. in some ways, and there are dice on it like you would see in a in a crisis pool or on a mob, but they're different sizes, and each size is a different part of the machine. And getting rid of that die off of that machine because we use a lot of timers in that game. There's not a lot of com. There's no combat. Yes. So Timers and stress are the things from complications are what harm us. Yes. So go ahead. I've I, now that I've laid it out,
2: feel free. Yeah. So what he did was here's you know four dice. They each represent a different part of this machine. And you don't know what they are yet, but you have to figure them out. And when you knock the die out, you A, know what that machine does, and B, how it fits into the overall larger machine. Yeah, it's really cool. So we basically had to like, okay, we've got four parts of this machine that we've got to figure out. And once we knock all of those dice off, we understand how it all works and we can make the thing do what we want it to do.
0: And then potentially reverse engineer it. Yes. Which is great for our super science game. Exactly.
2: Exactly. I thought that was really cool.
0: Set up a scene real quick. We're in a eleventh dimensional space, and it's entropy energy everywhere, destroying us until we get inside of this shield. The machine that we're talking about was the thing that made it so that entropy didn't destroy us. In in the base that we were at, the circle that we were at, the ring that we were at, the machine we figured out let us reverse engineer an entropy engine so that we could put it on our ship. Yes, which was really
1: cool. All right, what about you, Jerry? The first one that comes to mind in *Tour of the Shroud* is the um, Immigrant Song in in Gunny's Head. Yeah, Immigrant Song in (laughs) Gunny's Head was great. Yep. Because it was fun and narrative. It wasn't super detrimental. It interfered with things, but it also led the story. In our Aux game, a lot of the temporary traits that have gone on the table have been the result of uh, my character Grie botching.
2: (laughs) And so (laughs) we suddenly
1: have either a new crisis or just something different, which part of the fun of these games is that you can have a trait on the table that is positive or negative, or can be used by both sides. By spending plot points and making other roles, you can sometimes turn that to your advantage. Literally, one of the temporary traits became a sentient character in the party. And Polly. Yep. (laughs) Yes, the the sentient plant fungus. But if you listen to us talk about the games, there's always some traits on the table whenever a scene gets set up that we can all use. But there are some that are going to be specifically pro party and some are going to be more antagonistic to the characters, but they can be twisted around to work one way or the other. And it gives the players and their characters one more thing to interact with in the game besides just beat stick in combat or something else. When you get into games that have situations where one player is very specifically suited to the challenge at hand, adding traits to the table gives the other players things to interact with that can allow them to add to the story and also do things that interact in the scene. And instead of just, well, I'm going to add my, I'm going to add my assistance die for the third role again for three turns. No, I'm going to interact with this. I'm going to use this. I've got an idea of how to use this to help you do this. Or players can actually create their own temporary traits. I want to do this to help the next player do something else. This happens all the time in ox where Chris's character, Tam is going to attempt to do something, but, It's going to be a complicated and difficult maneuver because of the complexity of the code he's trying to break. And so uh, Bob's character, Alpha, decides to make a code-breaking machine or, you know, set something up to uh, set up a VR system for Tam's headsets that makes it easier. So he'll create a temporary asset on the table of VR headset D8, and now Tam gets an additional D8 to his role. It wasn't just an assist thing. It was something active that one player did that created a trait on the table, which makes it a lot more fun. Yeah, that is the uh, the third way to create a trait from, from the previous examples early on.
0: I didn't really go into how to make them, but I will real quick. The way that it works is if you want to create a trade on the table, you have to decide what level you want to make it at. And the game master is allowed to cap it if they want to. And then they will often take two dice that are equal to the difficulty. Like if you want to make a D10 asset on the table, they'll take 2D10. That's how that actually works and then any other assets or traits or whatever's on the table to add to that difficulty if there's like other things out there. And then they will roll and you will roll, and if you succeed, you create the trait. If not, there's a lot of things that could happen. They could create the trait out there but against you if they wanted to. They could just say it doesn't happen. And any ones that get popped out there can cause all sorts of havoc. So that's generally how the third one works. I didn't explain it. I'm going to explain it um, again at some future point when I uh, do another primer.
1: It's also interesting that sometimes temporary traits can be created in one scene and show up again in a later scene based on what's happening well according to the rules yes temporary traits go way after the scene unless you play a plot point to make them sticky
2: that's actually the rule for the game yes okay yes you have to pay a plot point for it to be sticky beyond the scene Mm -hmm. and you have to pay a plot point to make it usable by other people other people in the party Uh, or other people in general i should say
0: one of the best examples i have of that is when i made the swords the the ice swords Mm and episode in story two i paid a plot
1: point to make it usable by everybody what about temporary traits that are created by the gm as a gm doesn't play the the same rules as we do that's what i mean yeah but some of those temporary traits may show up that's what i was talking about Yeah, okay like you know you create a wild magic surge and at the end of the scene it's gone but that wild magic surge is out there so the GM might bring it back later on. Potentially, yeah. As another thing, by bringing back a temporary trait would be a... We're just talking about
0: fictional positioning of, of traits yeah. on the table at that point and how they can impact the story later. I agree with you 100%. You're, yep. you're absolutely that, right. That's what I was referring to, not player traits. Yep. There's, there's just a different rules. The, the game master and the players play by different rules in the game. The GM can do a lot more things Than that. Now, if a temporary trait showed up like wild surge that got created somewhere, like the poly thing that happened, he made a whole story around that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the game master's prerogative, right? And he didn't have to pay us anything for it. He's just he's just telling a story. Like he's setting scenes and dropping stuff on there. But
2: it's also a really good example of taking an oops that happened in the middle of a game. And being like, Oh, I'm going to play with this and it's going to get in your way. Yeah,
1: but Jerry, you're absolutely right. Like gamers can do what they want. But when temporary traits when the GM leans on those temporary traits later on, it adds some continuity to the game. Sure and makes things that may at times appear to be random, suddenly no longer random. Yeah. I, like
0: I said, I agree with you. It's just, it's an, it's a nice signpost for the game master and the players being like, Oh yeah. Like in other games, that kind of stuff happens. There's just not a trade on the table that makes it happen.
2: Yes. Right? And who doesn't like a callback?
0: I know, everybody likes a callback because you because Jerry's right, it makes yep. creates continuity. Yep. I love it. It's it's good stuff. Yeah. Yep. Um, what's the most interesting complication or hindrance you've ever that you've ever seen
2: in a scene? When we were wading through the area, it was mur- mucky and and wet, and you used your magic oh, yeah. to pull the water out of the way so that it was more solid ground for us to walk on.
0: The complication was muddy muddy field.
2: Yeah. And then you turned around and used it against Lancaster afterward. You said, "I'm going to bring that water back. back."
0: And and use it as swords. Yeah, because I pulled the water out and then I pulled it back in. Yeah, yeah. my favorite one is when Phil was like, "Ah, oh, can I just give you both a plot point and make there be tension between the two of you?" <laughs> yes, because that created a really interesting narrative to me, and yes. it put a thing on the table that we had to deal with.
2: Yeah, we had we had a character character interaction that felt like it should have created conflict. conflict. Yeah. Conflict, and it's like you guys should probably be mad at each other right now. Phil's like can I just do this, and we're like, "Oh yes, oh, please yeah. do."
0: Also slightly outside the rules, but not really. Like it's a slight rules modification. Normally, when you buy hindrances, because we were rolling against each other, I think you were rolling against me to try to make me less angry, because yes, I was mad. exactly, And I was rolling against you to see if I was, like, I was setting the difficulty for you. Yes. And we both rolled once, and it reduced my anger, but it created this other complication of, because I wasn't angry at you, I was no. angry at something else. Yeah, and but I was then just I, trying to bring you down. Yeah. And then I was mad at you for interfering.
2: And honestly, if it's, if it's not technically playing by the, the official raw... It was certainly appropriate, yeah, because we both had ones in a a thing where I was trying to talk you down from being angry. Things were said that just like you guys are mad at each other right now. That like makes perfect sense. I'm sure you'll hear more about this in two
0: weeks when we talk about interplayer conflict. So
1: I'd say that would be my favorite complication of either game. (laughs) That that was can't top that one. Yeah, that was good. So let's talk a bit. Phil's not here.
0: We can't actually ask him these questions, but about his uh, he's got like this crisis mod pool. And how he started linking them to complications or just free-floating traits in the scene. So we played aux. We had a thing that happened. And there were a bunch of traits on the table and things on the table for a potential fire cane to start, which is a, you know, a fiery hurricane on a planet. Mm-hmm. But there was a Terran space, some cosmic bullshit or something that was like shunting gravity into the planet. And then there was like another problem that went along with that. And that was linked to these other three problems creating humidity and volcanoes erupting and the the gravitational stabilizer malfunctioning. So it was like a pyramid of stuff, and then we started dealing with the pyramid of stuff.
2: Yeah, it was like an interconnected web. The gravity thing was influencing the volcanoes. The volcanoes were creating increased humidity and and, um, noxious gases. Yep. And so we had to attack the noxious gases and the humidity, or we could turn around and attack the volcanoes to get rid of both of those if we had done the, quote-unquote, effectively Uh yeah and it was this very intricate web of different interconnected things and we were hitting it from all over the place and it was a very tense scene that went right down to the wire
1: Mm -hmm. The, the three triggers were the volcano the tsunamis and the uh malfunctioning gravity stabilizer we couldn't all just focus on one thing sometimes we had to go after the equipment And if the tsunamis weren't dealt with, the humidity started to go up. We suddenly had to spend a turn. Somebody had to drop that humidity down a little bit so that we had an extra turn or two to deal with the other problems. So we kept jumping from different points in the pyramid, sometimes assisting each other, sometimes moving around. So it led to the characters doing something different every turn. Now, let me
0: break down because without a visual, it's really hard to see all this stuff. Yeah. The point is, is like the stuff at the top of this pyramid would add its dice to the stuff at the bottom of the pyramid. So if we didn't work top down, we would have to deal with larger dice pools. So we dealt with smaller dice pools by working top down. But while that was going on, the the stuff at the bottom, which was going to cause more complications was getting worse. Yeah. And that's good design, really. I think for, for Cortex, if you're running a Cortex game or you're playing a Cortex game or you're designing some encounters for your Cortex game. That's a really clever way to design your stuff. Top down and make the stuff at the top feed into the dice that are lower down the thing and let the stuff that's lower down cause more complications. Yep. All right. I think the last thing that I want to touch on before we get out of here is Phil has this nice little process for providing clues as assets, which are essentially temporary traits. Now, they don't get on the table all the time because the way that clues work in Cortex is that they can be assets, but they also can just be like, here's your clue to move you to the next scene. Now, the nice thing is, is what, when they become assets that we can utilize, then they get a die associated with them, yes. which means that we can actually use them in dice pools later on. Also, they can create hindrances and complications. So like if you're going to run an investigative-styled Cortex Prime game, which a lot of times our aux teams
1: are very investigative.
2: Yes, we have to figure out stuff.
1: Yeah, they, they got that very Star Trek vibe to them. Like, yep. what's the problem? Let's fix it. If you're running a mystery, one of the clues might end up being something like, the corrupt police chief is involved. That becomes a clue at like d6 or d8 now there are times that the corrupt police chief is involved will be something we can use to move on to another clue or to get more information but it can also be something that we start getting too close and now the gm can also lean on that exact same temporary asset to say you have to be careful because the police are looking for you because the corrupt, the corrupt chief, chief yeah. is involved. Yeah. And so it works both ways. And I like that. Yeah. And you can put triggers on that too. Like mm-hmm. if say if it gets to a D10,
0: because you'd like, you find another clue that implicates that the police chief is corrupt as like part of your clue, which you can use as evidence later. Yep. And the police chief finds out about it. Now that D10 is not just your clue for like solving the crime later potentially, but also his die that you add into dice pools when the Officers of the law are chasing you down. Yes,
2: Or when his vendetta against you starts to, you know, inflame. Because then the the
0: police chief can start like bending laws to make your life harder. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm
2: -hmm. It's really
0: good stuff. All right. Well, that's our episode on traits. I hope you enjoyed that primer and that more in-depth discussion about that. Join us next month for another Cortex Primer on some other topic within Cortex Prime. Now, as we begin to wrap up the show, we'll begin with some Patreon shout outs. Let's begin with the Queen's Court. Lars Henrik Evgen, the Lord out of time. Jim, our Royal Merchant Emeritus. Dramatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress. J.T. Evans, the Queen's Librarian. Schmidty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies, uh, one of my favorites. Andy Olson, the Duke of Dice. The Whiskies is because I like whiskey. John Carney, the Court Necromancer. We have determined that he is actually evil according to him. Craig, the Lord of One Name. Tiberius, Starcrash, Smith, the Baron of Britannia, and Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard, and boy, is that beard luscious! Other patrons include Chris Constantine, Miko Froelich, Eric Simon, Not That, Billy Mitchell, Fiona Huxley, Kathleen Halperin, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Beck Esperum, Joseph Knoll, Carlos Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brantley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, my Brett, not my Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, Eileen Barnes, and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. You know, if you like this show, you can hear more just like it at misdirectedmark.com. And if that's not enough, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com MMP, which has hundreds of bonus episodes. Aside from the bonus episodes from the After Show and the Bamboo Lounge, you also get our M&M Plays game stuff like Phil's nifty setting for the Children of the Shroud, our characters there, the mods we've been using, Bill Sessions of a Worksheet, which is still up there. And beyond that, there is my game notes on the Lamplighter system, which will power the Streets of Avalon RPG, which is now currently in playtesting. You also get, most importantly, access to our Slack channel, where you can talk to us pretty consistently. If the Slack channel isn't your thing, you can email us at mmp at misdirectedmark.com or hit us up on Twitter. At MisdirectedMark is the best place to get a response. Last, we have a bunch of other shows. We mentioned one of them already, but the roster includes... Pandas Talking Games, The Gnome Cast, Bonus Experience, and Thaco with Advantage. If that's not enough content for you, we have friends. There's the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge. The Knights of the Night, they have an excellent AP series going on currently right now about the Dresden Files. Mastering Dungeons, which is all about 5th edition D&D, you can get that on the YouTubes. And then of course, How to RPG by Sean P. Kelly of Gaming and BS. You can catch him live Saturday mornings at 9am at the aforementioned YouTubes. Well, this has been a misdirected mark production, the media arm of Encoded Design's Mic Drop.
2: We out.